Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Open up your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. So last week we covered one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to really interpret in the entire Bible, and it leaves open that question of our salvation. Are we eternally secure? Are we secure as long as we work at it really hard? That question is tough for us to even entertain in our minds. And so the writer of Hebrews now goes on to give us the good news. The the issue for us is not that great question, could one lose one's salvation, but are you abiding in Christ? Have you received the grace of God? Are you walking in the grace of God? Does your life bear witness that you are a child of God? And so the writer of Hebrews, now to make sure that none of us leave the building worried, that we're not wandering around considering whether we are or are not in Christ Jesus, gives us the recipe and the remedy for that whole thought process. Why would you ever mess with the grace of God? And so as we turn our attention now to verses 7 through 20, would you join me? We'll pray in this beautiful illustration of how you can be secure in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you, Lord, for the beauty of your word, for the majesty, Lord, of your grace, that saving grace, that grace that causes us to abide and dwell and live with you to walk in you. Pray that you would strengthen and encourage your church. Speak to us through your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The writer begins with an illustration, a farming illustration. It's one that's very easy to see in verse 7. For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those whom by it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed and whose end is burned. You see, as the writer now begins to illustrate our security, why we can be secure, we are never more secure in Christ than when we are most abiding in him. Our security comes through abiding. If you want to be secure in your relationship with the Lord, if you want to never worry about it as a child of God, then walk in Christ Jesus. Live godly. Don't sin. Make sure that you're doing the things that would be indicative of someone who's received the grace of God. 
You see, sometimes we put all of this on God and we forget that the security that we have is really in our minds. It's what we think about who we are in Christ. And so if I'm engaged in sinful behavior, if my life is not bearing fruit, if I do not have any indication that I'm a child of God, then I should be worried as to whether I am a Christian or not. You're supposed to think of those things. That's part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convict of sin and of righteousness. And so if there's no conviction of righteousness in your life, in other words, when you know what God's word says and you will not do it, you're supposed to be feeling contrary. You should be thinking about your life from the perspective of, God, what do you want from me? How would you have me live? And so I talk to Christians all the time that, you know, say, well, I just don't know if I'm saved or not. And you, you ask them why they think that way. And it is always struggles with sin in which they are not victorious. They're walking in some area of rebellion to what they know God wants, and they refuse to do it, and consequently, their assurance is out the window. Don't let that be you today. This gardening example is actually quite easy to see. When someone abandons a relationship with the Lord, it's like a field that doesn't bear fruit. If you don't have the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness, self-control, if your life is filled with those things which the Bible calls sin, then the fruit of your life bears witness to the fact that there's an issue between you and God in your relationship. And so it's actually a good thing. You know, so often we look at things that are potentially negative like this, and we think of them only in the negative light, But really, it's a positive thing that God doesn't let us wander around comfortably in our sinful behaviors. He does convict us of sin. And I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I'm sure most of you, if you've walked with the Lord for any length of period of time, you know those things that are potentially the Lord going, "Mm, that's not what I want. The Holy Spirit's knocking on the door of your heart going, now you need to go another direction. In our example, a good crop receives the good blessing. These things are so simple that sometimes we skip right over them. We, we want the blessings of God, but we look at the crops that come from, forth from our life and they don't look anything like Jesus. They look like the things we're not supposed to be. That's why the Bible is so faithful to tell us what we should not be, just as much as it is what we should be. These lists that we have throughout the New Testament of the things that are indicative of a child of God, we're supposed to look at those and go, that's what I'm supposed to do. That's how I'm supposed to live. And when we live that way, there's confirmation in our heart, this is what a child of God does. But if there isn't good fruit, if there is bad fruit, then my spirit is pierced, it's pricked. All of a sudden, I'm wandering around going, I really can't tell you for sure. Because I'm not walking in Christ. 
Children of God walk with God. Children of the devil walk with the devil. It is no more complex than that. Sometimes we try and make it into something else. If you're a child of God, you walk with God. And the opposite is also true. If you want assurance, bear good fruit. The cure for this being useless is really help it helps us to understand this process anyway. It's found in Second Peter chapter one, if you want to turn there. In verses 5 through 11, and let me read this for you. And for this very reason, you must make every effort to support your faith with goodness, and goodness with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with endurance, and endurance with godliness, and godliness with mutual affection, and mutual affection with love. For if these things are yours and are increasing among you, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus, who is the Christ. For if anyone lacks these things, he is nearsighted and blind and forgetful of the past cleansing of sins. And therefore, brothers and sisters, be all the more eager to confirm your call and your election. For if you do this, you will never stumble. For in this way, entry into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be richly provided for you. You see, there is a direct correlation between faith and works. Between what you do with your life and what you declare with your life. You see, a lot of people do things that do not declare the salvation that they have in Jesus. And when you do that, you're conflicted. Your mind is going, man, I'm not sure who's driving the ship here. Who's the captain of my life? Don't be a Christian who is a Christian in name only. If you do. And I'm not telling you whether you are or are not saved, so make it very clear in your mind. Pastor Jeff is not saying that I know. I will never know. But I can tell you this, if you're not walking in Christ, you're going to be a miserable Christian. God will make it sure. He'll make sure that you do not feel good walking in your sin. He'll make sure that your life is in turmoil. He'll make sure that you are tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. If you walk in the flesh, you will reap from the flesh. That's just as certain as you're getting up in the morning. And so I guess the question is, why would you go there? Why would anyone who's received the grace of God choose to not walk in the grace of God? Verse 9, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things accompanying salvation. Though we speak in this manner. So we now see that this is an encouraging note intended to get our eyes back on Jesus 
and off of these things, which might have us in that place to where we're kind of unsure where we are. Why would you go there? Why would you really want to be that person who says with your actions, well, I don't actually believe what the Bible says? One of the most useful things that I can tell you is this, that the same Bible that says that you are saved by grace and through faith also says that if you're a child of God, you should not sin. The same Bible that says God loves us says that those who are his do not practice such things as you used to be before you got saved. You see, sometimes we want to err both directions. There are those that put so much emphasis on the work side that you're saved essentially by what you do. And those who make grace so free as it becomes cheap. And all of a sudden I have no responsibility to live godly in Christ Jesus. The Bible teaches a balance of those two things. You see, I have an awesome potential in Christ. But just like at every profession that you might engage in, that potential comes through hard work. Amen? You're not going to become the best at anything unless you put effort into it, including being a Christian. Christians who put no effort into their relationship with God will not be effective Christians. You're not going to be used of the Lord in marvelous ways unless you apply yourself in marvelous ways to be used of the Lord. There is a direct correlation between our faith and our works. James 2, as we've been studying, and James 1 as well, paints this picture. Join us on Thursday nights. We're we're going through the book of James right now. Brothers and sisters, it is very true that we do not work for our salvation. Let me make that very clear. You can't earn it. It is a gift. It comes through believing in Christ Jesus as your Lord. But if you've received that grace gift, you will work towards godly ends in your life. Your life will then bear testimony and witness of the fact that you've received that grace. And so Hebrews now puts this back. In essence, the onus becomes upon us to do something with the gift of grace. God hasn't forgotten you. He hasn't overlooked you. You're not insignificant. You absolutely matter. But because you matter, you're also supposed to bear fruit. Your life is supposed to shine for Christ. And if we would all endeavor to do this, the world would have a stronger witness for the cause of the gospel. And it is, in fact, when the church fails to do this, that people who are lost look at the church and say, why would I want to be like that? I don't need to go to church to sin. And so when the world sees people in the church not living according to the Bible, according to God's word, The world uses us as their excuse as to why they don't want to know Jesus. We don't ever want to be that 
group of people. We want people to look at our lives and go, there's something so measurably different that they would want what we have. We should be stellar at what we do. You ever noticed how people who are promoted in any profession are the best at what they do? Very rarely is it for any other reason. Those who are the best at what they do get promoted. And the same is true for believers. If you want God to use you in greater ways, be really good at where he has you right now. Make sure your life bears witness of the grace that God has placed in you. And to this end, we live in this beautiful, hopeful assurance. Verse 11, for we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now we just saw in verse 10, love you, so this triunity of God's character and nature, faith, hope, and love. The end of 1 Corinthians 13, this incredible treatise on agape love, which is the greatest of all of the spiritual gifts. You see, my full assurance comes from when I am most like Christ. So when I most walk in faith, and I most walk in hope, and I most walk in love, I am most like Jesus. But when I don't have hope, I'm not looking to the future, I'm looking to today, and and what I want out of life is something today, when I'm not focused on heaven, and the things today don't, don't go well, then my hope wanes. If I don't walk in faith, but I walk by sight, I'm often deceived in my own mind. Because I have to believe that God is who he says he is. We're going to see that as we get to chapter 11. I walk by faith. There are a lot of things in life I can't explain to you day by day. Why we go through the things that we go through, many times my answer to that is God only knows. That's true in my own life. It will be true in your life. And in fact, to the extent that I lay hold of God's promises, they become real to me. But if I won't lay hold of the promises of God, if I won't say yes to the things that God wants to do in my life, if I just keep disrespecting, in essence, the promises of God by attempting to make life what I want it to be, if I try and live in the moment, the here and now, and I'm not looking to the hereafter, then often my life is a making of my own. And I'm not very good at that. And so God calls us to faith, to hope, and to love. My conviction should produce action in my life. If I truly believe something, I act on it. Amen? It's actually quite easy to see. And we do that in all different venues in our life. The reason that you go to college is not simply so that you can get some more intellect. 
very typically, it is associated with a career path. Amen? You believe that going to college is going to give you a degree. That degree is going to translate into your future. In the very same way, so are works in the life of a believer. They may not instantaneously bear fruit, but ultimately they will bear fruit. The Christian's life is lived with a future-forward view. I look at the future and I say, God, this is your future for me. One day I'm going to heaven. I don't look at the here and the now and go, well, this is it. No more than you look at the hours and hours and hours of study in college. And you can't see how this is ever going to translate into something that's going to make money for you. It isn't until the future, after you've gone through that apprenticeship program and after you've done some time in that field of study, after, in the future, as believers, we are future forward. We abide in faith and hope and love. And you can see this in almost everything that we do as believers. Why would I want to love someone if it didn't matter in the future. Because it may not matter now. If you love your enemies now, your enemies may still hate you. But when you get to heaven and your enemy is there because you loved them while they were hating you, it matters for the future, doesn't it? And the same is true for virtually every spiritual truth. It has eternal weight. Glory, as the Bible calls it is that eternal weight. And to a large degree, when you think about your own understanding of the promises of God, they're much like stars at night. The stars shine the brightest when it's the darkest at night. Amen? So it is against the backdrop of our daily living that the promises of God actually stand out. Where things are toughest, that's when I can lean on God's promises the hardest. The longest, they're more real to me. You know, when somebody talks to me about the reality of of losing loved ones, it's real to me. We're sitting here right now, Connie's at home, we're waiting for a phone call, her dad is back in the hospital again and given very little chance. We're, We're waiting. I was in El Salvador when my sister died. My mom died on a Saturday night. I taught on Sunday morning. And I don't say that for any other reason than I trust the promises of God or I could not do these things. I could not do these things. These things are made of heaven in our lives. And we either trust God or we don't trust God. And for you and for me, to the extent that we trust God and we test him, We say, God, I trust you on this. Would you please prove yourself to me? Can I tell you what God's been in my life? Faithful every single time. Every time. Every time. Not one promise of the Lord has failed to come true in my life. Not one. We live 
in that hopeful assurance, abiding hope, fierce faith, and everlasting love. These things are not just for the moment. They're forever. That's, that's why we believe we have blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Amen? That blessed assurance is here and now, but it speaks of a hereafter, doesn't it? Our grace-filled assurance is in God's promises. Verse 13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. That's why I'm always amazed when Christians you know, cry out for the Constitution or cry out for the Supreme Court of the United States, as wonderful as those institutions, those documents are. They are the lower court. The highest court is the court of heaven. My promises are anchored in heaven, as we will see. I turn to the judge of heaven and earth, the one who created all things, and by him was nothing created that was created, and they were created for him. He swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And we'll see this as we begin chapter 11. Can you imagine if Abraham's promises were in in vitro fertilization? Think about it. You know, somehow we could miraculously create one more child? That wasn't the issue, was it? That wasn't just about one child named Isaac. It was about God being faithful to do what God had promised. Abraham, I'm going to make you a father of a multitude. And all of the nations of the earth will be blessed in you. Not just about one baby. It's about Messiah coming through you, dude. Little bigger promise. Abraham had to patiently endure. He wasn't so patient at times. Amen? I love the life of Abraham because in a lot of ways, I'm like him. I do really good for a period of time, and then it's like I have a little momentary lapse of faith. It's like, oh, God's forgotten about me again. I know you guys never do that, just me, but... Because you just walk on a cloud of the beautiful promises of God all day, every day, and you never have lapses of faith. Of course we do. I'm not saying you absolutely have to, or even that you should, but you will. Almost assuredly, you're going to have times when your faith is going to wane a little bit. Are you going to rest in the promises of God, the full assurance that he keeps his promises? You are not keeping God's promises. God is keeping God's promises. His promises are yes and amen because of him. They're not yes and amen because you're good. He's good. He keeps them. A matter of fact, Scripture says he is faithful when we are faithless. Amen? The readers of this letter, as we'll see in chapter 12, are about to give up. They're about to go back. 
They wanted to stop farming, to begin with the original illustration here. An interesting thing, I don't know how many of you have any experience in farming. My family actually uh, did when I was growing up. Farming is hard work, really hard work. It requires that you're up before the chickens, and you go to bed when it gets dark because you're going to be up before the chickens get up, okay? And the whole time you work and you plow and you water and you tend the field. And you know the strange thing? When you go out into the field and you see weeds, you don't just go, ah, it's just a weed. When you see one weed, that one weed comes out. Because one weed will turn to two, and two to ten, and ten to a hundred. In a matter of days, you will have no crop. If you're going to be a successful producer of things for God, you have to weed the field. That's on you. When things come up in your life, if it's not honoring to God, you need to pull it out by the roots and throw it in the trash pile. That's where the work comes into your life. We have to get busy. We've got to plow and plant and weed and cultivate, water the soil, do the things that God's called us to do. The increase, the harvest, is on God. Another interesting thing about farming, there are some things completely out of your control as a farmer, aren't there? Let me give you one. It's called sunlight There's no sunlight. Your crops are not growing. You do not get to produce sunlight. Furthermore, if you're relying on water and the Lord doesn't send rain, and you happen to be a subsistence farmer to where that rain is going to determine whether your crops grow, then God alone controls that too. So there's your part and there's his part. And he will always be faithful to do his part. But you have to also be faithful to do your part. Your works matter. Your life matters. How you live your life matters. You have to patiently endure, which implies you also have to patiently get busy about the things that are in your control. My control. If I want that ultimate assurance of God's grace, then I join God at what he's doing. I say, God, I believe this is a good farm. I believe this is a good field. I believe this will produce great fruit, and so I am joining you in doing exactly what you want me to do. You see, that grace-filled assurance is built on God's oath. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by greater. In other words, we, we cry out. It's interesting, when you go into court, at least for now, You're still going to be given the opportunity to swear on something else, but for ages, you put your hand on the Bible and you swore, for God so help me, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And in the same way, notice this, for indeed men swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them to an end of all dispute. In other words, as far as our court systems were concerned, in essence, you were appealing to God. It's like, God, let's get the truth out here. You can cause men to tell the truth. We'll rest in you, whatever happens. 
And thus God determining, verse 17, to show more, more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which for God it is impossible to lie, that we might have strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay a hold of the hope that is set before us. And so this beautiful picture of the assurance that we have when we run to God, when we go to his city of refuge, which there were six of them back in the Old Testament times, six cities, three on each side of the Jordan River, and if you accidentally killed someone, you could run to those cities of refuge and you would be safe there. No one could take your life. They couldn't bring you out of the city of refuge. You were completely safe. And an investigation would be done, and if you were found guilty, uh, then the person would have an opportunity to bring you before the elders, and you could have the appropriate punishment. But if you were innocent, you were spared. But the wonderful thing about it was, it gave God time to work. God was able to work in that person's life. And in the same way, we have fled to Jesus. I've run into the everlasting arms of Christ and said, Lord, I'm guilty. But I'm not guilty unto death. I am a sinner and I declare that I need a Savior and I've run to Jesus. Save me. Only he can do that. And he's made a note that he will not cast out those that come to him. It's his unchanging will that men be saved, that women be saved, that we actually have a relationship with the true and the living God. God wants that. That's the beauty of our assurance. God actually desires for you to be saved. And for us to know that we are saved. So very often we almost think about our salvation as if God doesn't want us. God wants you. And he's done everything to make salvation possible. And so you can rest in it. If God didn't want us, he wouldn't have sent Jesus in the first place. Amen? The world would have just continued on, tumbled into chaos. There would be no salvation, no eternal security. There'd be no God evident in this world. And we probably would have all killed each other by now. Think about it. But he does love us. He actually wants us. John 5 says, truly, Jesus saying, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but he's passed out of death and into life. There in verse 24. You see, God actually wants you. And he gives you something simple to do to get there. Believe. Not work, believe, rest in, trust in. The fact of the matter is, I am guilty. I need a city of refuge. I need to be able to run to Jesus. But that's not how I'm justified. Just as Romans 3 says, I'm justified by the gift of his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. That's how I'm getting to heaven. That's why I'm sure. If I were to give you all a task, 
I want you to write down 10 things that you think are necessary for salvation. Let me give you a couple of things that would happen. You would not all write down the same 10 things. Furthermore, you wouldn't put them in the same order. And if they were all necessary, chances are not one person in this room, including the person who writes their own list, would actually succeed in the 10 things. That's why the Bible plainly declares that by the works of the flesh is no one justified. You couldn't come up with your own plan of salvation to save yourself. You'd mess up with your own rules. And so God says, we're not going to leave it in your hands. Because if we do, you're going to be really uncertain that anybody is going to be saved. So I'll take that upon myself, and I'll make myself your salvation. Jesus himself became salvation for us. It's actually what his name means, Yehoshua. God is salvation. And so because God can't lie, because he never tells an untruth, the things that he says are true. So when you read John 3.16, it's true. God so loved you that he sent his only begotten son into the world that the world through him would be saved. Amen? That's a promise. That's God telling you how much he loves you. That in 1 John chapter 5, when it says, He who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. John goes on to write, These things I have written you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life, that you can be certain, you can be sure God staked his own character on it. He swore by himself, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. God has placed his whole character on his plan of salvation so that you would be certain, so that you would be sure, so that you would walk around in this beautiful understanding that God actually loves you. He wants you in heaven. And all he's asking you to do is make sure you're doing the things that indicate you're going to heaven. That way you're absolutely certain. You see, if I entertain virtually anything, and I don't really care what it is, you can name almost anything, Now, I can tell you that I'm a pretty good trout fisherman. I think I am. But if you were to come to my house and you go through my garage, you don't find a single trout rod. There's no tackle box. You can't spot a hook anywhere at the Gill house. You, you, You look and there's not a single photo ever of Pastor Jeff holding a trout in his hand. There's no picture of him on a lake has no knowledge of how to tie even the simplest of all the fishing knots, then you're going to say, I'm not sure he's telling the truth. 
you would have zero assurance that I'm actually a trout fisherman. Amen? And in the same way, if there's no character of Christ in your life, if there's nothing visible in the garage of your life that indicates that you're actually a follower, a believer, a disciple, if there aren't the most simple indicators that you are a child of God, then you're supposed to be concerned that you're being real with God. You can have assurance. How do you have assurance? By doing what the scriptures say. Living godly in Christ Jesus. Notice how this ends. This is all anchored in Jesus, church. And this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. Where's my hope? In Jesus. The anchor of my soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us. Even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, when Jesus died, he tore the veil. The high priest couldn't do that. Every time the high priest went in, the high priest also came out. And then the high priest died. In in fact, every high priest died, eventually. And so they couldn't be a forerunner of things eternal, amen? It couldn't be permanent, amen? But Jesus, being God, tore the veil. It's not there anymore. It doesn't exist. That grace that you now walk in is a permanent standing that's based on who Christ is. He's the forerunner. He went in first, and he went on to heaven first, so that you can be absolutely certain that what he said is true. That's why Jesus in John chapter 14 said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and then he went on to tell us, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, but it is true. And I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you might be also. Why is that beautiful? Because he came here to purchase it and he went back to prove it. He said, I'm giving my life. You can come. And if you're truly mine, here's the things that are going to be true about your life. And as you think on this whole process of what's going on here, my hope is now anchored in heaven. It can't be moved. It's not like some iron anchor on a ship. You bring up a big enough storm, and no matter how much anchor and anchor chain you have on any ship, it can be moved. But the anchor of our hope isn't here. It's in heaven. And so we are absolutely secure because heaven isn't moved. Jesus can't be pushed away from that which he's done in our lives. That finished work that Jesus accomplished 
is the only reason that we can draw near to the Lord. That's why when we sing that old hymn by Fanny J. Crosby, Blessed Assurance, Jesus is mine, oh, what a foretaste of glory divine, heir of salvation and purchase of blood, born of the Spirit, washed in his blood. The two last stanzas are, this is my story. This is my song. That's why I praise my Savior all the day long. You see, if it wasn't on Jesus, if it was on my works, I wouldn't be praising my Savior all day long. I'd be worried all day, every day. But because my anchor is in heaven... I have blessed assurance, not because of my works. My works are just indicative of the fact that I'm grateful. Lord, thank you for saving me. Let me show you how much I love you by what I do for you. Let me prove who I am in Christ Jesus by the way that I conduct my life. You see, when you're anchored in Jesus then you are steadfast and sure and immovable. You are abounding in the things of the Lord. And it won't be in vain in him. And so church, why mess with God's grace? Just abide in the vine. And he in you. Produce fruit. It may be a little fruit at first, and then it becomes some fruit, and then more fruit, and hopefully much fruit in all of our lives. That's the path. Work towards that end of telling Jesus how much you love him by the way you live your life, and you'll be absolutely certain of who you are in Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. Need prayer after service. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've never accepted that grace gift and you want to know the Lord today. We have a team in our prayer room. Just simply walk in and say, I want to know Jesus. But if you know him, let's make sure that the world knows that we know him. Amen. <laughs> Father, thank you for that assurance. that we have an anchor behind the veil, Lord, anchored in heaven, of who we are in you, Jesus. And we are so grateful, Lord. Thank you for loving us. Help us to bear much fruit in our lives. We thank you for the home that we have in heaven, that mansion waiting, so when we have those days where we sense loss, we can look forward with hope to what lies ahead. God, bless us as we give our lives full attention to your glory. Lord, help us to walk in you, to trust you, to be all that you've called us to be. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.